up all of a sudden in the middle of the African plain and you didn't know how to speak the language and you didn't know where to get a job and you didn't even know where to get clean water, who would you ask for help? It seems like the idea that we are all human and that's a shared a shared concept and value and that every human being deserves the same rights to the same access to the same opportunities um, whether it's health or education or to get a job or to pursue just a safe happy life I think we all deserve the same opportunity you're listening to season two of seeking refuge a podcast about the human stories behind refugees your host this week is Aiden Thomason. My name is Mary Helen O'Connor, and I am an assistant professor of English at Georgia State University. But my scholarship is in refugee studies. Um, I've been teaching in Clarkston, which is a refugee resettlement area. So for the last 13 years, I've been teaching and learning and advocating on behalf of my refugee students. So for a starting point, how did you become aware of and involved in refugee work? My students, of course. (laughs) So I have a good story about that. I was a fresh out of grad school uh, English adjunct English teacher here and had a new baby and was not really, um, you know, aware of kind of what was, you know, how new moms are. And I was Mm -hmm. home grading papers one night. It's the first assignment I always assign in my um, English 1101 class, which is how, how did you end up in this class? And the essay, I'll never forget it, started, I was born in a small village in South Sudan, Arab militiamen attacked my village um, and killed my parents. And it continued on and I was just shocked and blown away. And it turned out that student, Nathaniel Nyack, was my first refugee student that I was aware of. Um, And he was obviously Sudanese. And so that kind of opened up the rabbit hole of learning about what it means to be a refugee. He was one of the Lost Boys, which um, lots of folks in the United States are familiar with the Lost Boys story. And he's now um, a graduate with m- multiple degrees and living back in South Sudan, building schools, which is um, m- miraculous. So it's a good story. That's amazing. From that point, what was your what were your next steps once you met this student? What did you start doing to get involved? Well, I was not I was not PhD'd then, so that <laughs> yeah. became a really great area for me to to open up for my my studies as a PhD student. Um, but I would say that my path to where I am now as a scholar has been complicated, um, and it's been really. Um, it's had had a lot of self-reflection because as um, an American and as a woman and um, as a person from a pretty privileged background, um, engaging with a marginalized community and understanding issues around commodification of story and identity and place and authorship and um, the ethics of how we tell other people's stories and how we co-author and share stories and how we help people has really changed over the last decade. And so, um, and probably will continue to change, but that has been a long, complicated journey. 
So what are what are some of the ways that the how we tell other people's stories has changed? Like, well, I'm doing it right now. I make sure they're here. Yeah. <laughs> so when um, you, you all communicated with me, I like to be sure whenever I'm asked that we um, not just make space at the table for my refugee students and friends, but we include them to make sure that there's... Um, that there are listeners and that they have, I think it's probably more my job now just to make the space for people to have the audience to share their own story. It's not up to me to tell it. But as a teacher of English, I'm good at helping people communicate. <laughs> <laughs> so you started a mentoring initiative called the Mentoring Initiative for New Americans. Mm -hmm. Could you explain a little bit about what that is and how it got started? Yeah, so... Over the years, just by default, people who had trouble navigating admissions and financial aid would come find Dr. O'Connor <laughs> because it can be really complicated. You all are, you know, um, students. And if your parents didn't go to college and you're not from the United States and you've never heard of a FAFSA and you don't know about tax returns and you don't know about the SAT and all that, it's really hard. And so um, over the years, I helped a lot of people and I met um, a, an alum from Georgia State who was a Syrian refugee. And Dr. Haval Kelly said, you know, we should start a mentoring program because you can't help everybody. So you need to help other people help can can expand um, the assistance. And so years ago, I mean, it's been like three years now, Haval and I put together that organization. Um, and we're still we're still mentoring. It, it has become more difficult. Um, as we all know, the political kind of narrative in our country right now has really changed since we started the organization. When we started the organization, Barack Obama was president and we were welcoming 100,000 refugees a year in the United States. And every single month, it seems to get more difficult. So, what are what are some of the specific obstacles that refugee students face starting school? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of scholarship around what do refugee students as a whole face. Interrupted education. Mm -hmm. If you um, don't speak English, it takes about five years to get academic proficiency in a new language. Um, Barriers that include, like I said, your parents just knowing how to file taxes and f fill out paperwork. I, I remember a good friend of Obai's in mind, um, a student called me one night and said, hey, I need a ride to college tomorrow. And I said, okay, this is our good friend Josiah. And he literally needed me to take him to his college in North Georgia the next day. Well, I didn't realize, I mean, I got up in the morning, I went to his house, picked him up in his apartment, and that ended up, my whole day was taking him and filling out the financial aid form, doing the FSA ID. I was literally his parent. I took him to Walmart, we bought stuff for his dorm. I mean, he didn't know, he wasn't ready. We walked into his dorm, it was empty, an empty mattress, and, you know, I mean, that's that's an, a story about some of the things that culturally a lot of refugee students aren't prepared for because, I mean, they, they don't have any expectation to know. There are lots and lots of other, you know, a, a, around agency and advocacy. If you walk into an admissions office and you don't speak English that fluently and you don't really know what you're supposed to be asking for, it can be complicated. So it goes all the way through um, 
graduation and, and navigating networking. One of the big things that Haval and I talk about is access to a network. So um, refugee students don't know a lot of people. So if you're going to be finding, if you want to go to med school and you want to find a doctor to intern with or somebody to kind of shadow, it's not, you're not going to have those kind of networks like you would in your home country. So um, that's another thing that we try to really work on with students. What are some of the changes that you can see um, either tangibly or more broadly when students have access to higher education? Well, the New York Times published a really great article before the break that basically in sum says, demonstrated quantitatively that children of immigrants outperform native-born students. That's bad news for you guys. So um, once they get past the barriers, they they exceed the performance of, you know, even my own children. So that's the payoff is that for largely, and that, that was also measured by country of origin. So we can look at where folks are from and how well they do once they're here. Um, personally, it's incredibly gratifying. I'm going to dinner tonight with um, a student I helped many years ago who now works for Intel. He got a full ride to the University of Southern California. He was he was called, he was a Jack Kent Cook scholarship winner. And so that's a $90,000 scholarship from a kid from a small village in Ethiopia who had never seen a TV until he was 10 years old. Now, if that isn't, you know, kind of personally gratifying, but the payoff and the investment in, in removing the barriers of access to people. Um, I don't know what else is. And then there's one sitting here right here. So <laughs> I'm surrounded by really good stories. <laughs> That's amazing. So beyond your initiative, are there any steps that Georgia State as a campus is taking um, to make it easier for migrants to attend school and succeed? Not institutionally. We're a state-run institution, and we're in a conservative state. Mm -hmm. um, I get a lot of internal support. So I, I think our community is very immigrant-friendly. We have a, a huge international student population, especially at this campus. Um, it's funny. People who attend school here will maybe transfer to another college or move to another state and they want to come back here to visit because it still feels like home. So in the sense that Clarkston and Atlanta is a, is a welcoming place and our institution is very international student friendly, I think that it creates um, an, a, a warm and supporting educational environment for refugees and immigrants. We also have a very, probably one of the highest enrollments of refugee students because I don't know another university that has a campus in the middle of a refugee resettlement area. Yeah. For you as an educator, how has working with international and refugee students affected your perspective on how you teach, how you approach the world? One thing it has really impacted my worldview is that mobility should be a human right. And it's really changed my ideas around what the purpose of borders and nations, what that means. Um, I believe that people's destiny should not be determined by where they, whether they win the birth lottery. You know, 70 million people cannot have live safely in their home country just by virtue of the fact of where they were born. So it's very incredible that we were born in a country like the United States, mm -hmm. but um, most of the displaced people in the world live in the global south and do not have access to education and health and 
you know, and money, the ability to support themselves or even to protect themselves. So I think that's really changed my worldview. My personal view um, and my personal life, will ne- I will never be able to separate my work from what I love to do. Um, I think that if you ask my students and my refugee friends, this it's a perfect fusion of work and my personal kind of legacy, what I want to be remembered for, um, are my refugee friends and students. And um, the work that we do together. So it's what I do at work and it's what I do all weekend and at night and they are, um, it's not separate for me. So your research is pretty, um, becoming pretty interdisciplinary. You mentioned that you're, um, working in public health now. Could you Mm -hmm. describe some of that? Yeah, there've been really two big strains. So this college was previously a community college, and we were merged with Georgia State, which is a research institution. And when that happened, the faculty at the research institution, of course, are driven by grant funding and different kinds of research initiatives. And the community college, is a, there's a focus on teaching. So my PhD came from the downtown campus before we merged. So then we merged, and we began to have access to a lot more Um, grant writing and faculty that were interested in doing research. And it had always been my personal and professional hope and goal that a university should be researching the communities where we work. And it just so happens the argument for this is that there there are a few defining crises, global crises. And if I asked you guys what they were, what would you say? I mean, what come, what do you guys think about um, I would think about displaced peoples, climate change. There you go. You just said exactly <laughs> what I wanted you yeah. to say. So here we have an opportunity to study the global refugee crisis, which is growing exponentially, exponentially, a problem that is facing communities around the world. And we are an institution right here with this community to study those problems. So a lot of the work that you, if you read kind of widely in refugee studies, the first thing it always says is like, there's a dearth of information. And I think a lot of that might be because it's, it's an immediate crisis when people are displaced. And so a lot of the energy goes into helping people in the, the kind of humanitarian, they need help now. But what about the long-term questions about resettlement and how we support people and social integration and all those sorts of things. And so um, public health is one of the kind of huge disciplines that looks at a lot of different things and social determinants include things like um, jobs and education and the general well-being of a community and so there have been lots of opportunities to propose research and this one came along and one of another kind of urgent need in the refugee community everyone knows is has to do with health because if you have experienced trauma in civil war. There are all sorts of different kind of health needs. And that just sort of glares out at you. Um, And also whether you have access to decent health. And so um, as I worked in the community, there are are lots of different initiatives. We work to get nursing students that are volunteering in the free clinics in Clarkston. So they have exposure to serving refugee and immigrant populations. And then it just kind of turned into, I started to get to know public health faculty and this, this big grant opportunity came along. And so we went for it and we got it and it started in October. It's, um, it's called a prevention research center. 
Um, it's funded by the CDC. It's the only academic funding that the CDC offers. And so our research project is around culturally and linguistically appropriate um, care. We have a child, a child nurturing program called Safe Care that is um, a validated evidence-based program for positive parenting. So we're doing a, a culturally and linguistically um, appropriate implementation of that research project in the Clarkston community. So how practically, um, what steps are you taking for it to be culturally and linguistically appropriate to this community? So one of the um, parts of the Prevention Research Center is it's focused on community-based participatory research and a large, I'm the co-PI for community engagement. And so we have a community advisory board that's made up of community leaders. We will be hiring from the refugee community to do the implementation of the research project. I've been interviewing every single day this week to hire people um, to, to do the implementation of the safe care program from, from the refugee community. Uh, we work with the agencies who are doing resettlement. So um, that is just a starting place for us. We do a lot of other things with the community. We host um, a summit that brings together all the different agencies and groups that are serving Clarkson and the refugee community. You can ask Mayor Terry later today about kind of the work I do. He's up there with me um, doing the Clarkston Summit. Um, we do a lot of, there's another flyer down there. We do a lot of informational work. So we have a big Rohingya community here, and we brought an expert to come talk about the, the genocide that has been ongoing in Burma. Um, a lot of advocacy work. Our, co our congressman came to that event. And then interestingly, <laughs> the guys I worked with on that project were in The Hague literally a few weeks after that when the Burmese government was essentially on trial for, for genocide, for war crimes. So um, we do a lot of work to bring global awareness to our students, too. So in the ways that we can connect the community to the classroom and they can help inform students here about what's going on in the world. Um, you'd be surprised. I teach classes to undergraduates and graduates on refugee studies issues, global migration, is and you'd be surprised how many people don't even know what a refugee is in the United mm -hmm. States or the difference between an immigrant and undocumented person and a refugee. And, and then I, that made me remember one other thing. Georgia State, you asked me what Georgia State has done. We did get a large foundation grant to open an immigrant law clinic, and it just actually started last semester. So there are things um, from the institution academically that have been happening to help support um, refugee and immigrant students, and that's another big one that I had totally forgotten about. What do you see as the role of students at the campus at large in relation to these these initiatives that you're working on? Well, I think you all are a good example. The only way that we are going to solve the big problems in the world are if our, our students are aware of what they are and care, you know? And so um, I think raising awareness is a, is a big deal. But another complicated question is how to help. Lots of people like to help, but they're not really sure how to help. So one of the first things I like to teach is, is asking people just to listen. So, or you can ask someone, how can I help you? And that happens a lot in our mentoring program, you know, like how I'm not passing my math class. Could you please help me find a tutor? Something, you know, as simple as that, asking and listening to understand how people need help. 
college students are um, the hope. And I don't know whether it m makes a difference where you're from. But um, when I was a kid, they had this thing in high school. Called, I, I did it all through school called Future Problem Solvers of America. And I think of you guys as the future problem solvers. So if we're going to solve climate change or global displacement, the refugee crisis, any of these problems, it's going to be up to y'all. It's a big ask. <laughs> <laughs> so another question about the the research center, what are some specific public health problems that are particularly present in this community that you guys are looking to address? So we did a study of refugees visiting a clinic, a free clinic. Uh, we did a few clinics participated in the study. It was a small study. Um, and in providers, doctors and nurses, and we found out all sorts of interesting information. I think the most upsetting part was that we, we found out that the majority of patients, even when an interpreter was used, were not understanding what a doctor or nurse or medical provider was trying to tell them. And there's sort of a, a, concept, a misconception that if you use the language line or you use an interpreter or you use a family member, we don't, we, we really do not have, um, and that, that's actually not just a linguistic or cultural issue. Health literacy broadly, when you go to the doctor, you really don't understand or hear most of what they tell you. So I partner with um, another faculty member who is, her focus is health literacy and adult, adult literacy. Her name is Dr. Iris Feinberg. And so she, she has helped do all of this research. And we actually Monday are going to go speak to our nursing and health sciences undergraduate students about doing culturally and linguistically aware service delivery of health information. But that's not just for refugees and immigrants. That's for everybody. So one of the things that, that Iris teaches is called teach back, so that when you tell someone, you give somebody instructions on what to do, they have to tell you back what exactly it was. You know, was it to take two pills twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, or was it to take, you know, two pills before you go to bed? You'd be shocked at, at kind of people's literacy rates, whether they're English speakers or not. But we also want to be really aware of different kinds of cultural misperceptions in um, linguistically and culturally different populations. So for another example, um, there's not really a word for certain medical terms in different languages. A lot of that comes up when we have we have a, a large Burmese population here. So they don't have necessarily a word for stress. There's not kind of a conceptual or a linguistic equivalent in their language. So understanding how to communicate things um, in, in culturally and linguistically relevant ways so that people can understand. There are a lot of chronic health conditions among the adults, um, the adult refugee population. So diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. Um, there's, of course, most of the folks in the refugee population have experienced a human rights violation. So there's high rates of um, mental health issues. And that's another cultural issue because um, in some cultures, they don't even acknowledge that that exists. Depression is not a concept in some communities. And so um, trying to explain and elicit those problems and treat those problems can be complicated. That's 
really interesting, kind of a huge, <laughs> a huge topic it is to get huge, into. Yeah. <laughs> and we have five years to kind of start unwinding mm-hmm. that. You know, there are lots of other smaller problems, like that a lot of these people are not insured. And mm-hmm. policy in the United States has been rolling back even more of that. A lot of the folks in the refugee community work in high um, in, in jobs where there are high rates of injury. So a mm-hmm. lot of our um, refugee friends work in chicken factories and they're exposed to chemicals and they have all sorts of dangerous conditions where they work. There's a lot of environmental issues. They live in housing that's old and aging. And so there's a lot of um, health issues that can come from your environment. So, yeah, there's a lot. And, the, and it, it's under-investigated as kind of a whole as a population. If you look at the research, almost in every discipline um, around the refugee population as a discrete group of people to study in almost every area, there's just kind of a lack of information. Mm -hmm. For the future, are you guys just hoping to unwind the mysteries surrounding the public health aspects of this? Or what are your long-term goals for the duration of the center? Yeah, I think we'd like to to begin understanding how we could do one culturally and linguistically appropriate implementation of an intervention. And then once we figure out whether it worked, then we can apply that same sort of methodology to different kinds of delivery of care. And I think that long-term, what we'd really like to do is have the community identify what they think their top health needs are. So instead of us coming in and prescriptively saying, I mean, we can ask the Board of Health and we can look at certain census data and we can look at all sorts of analytical data and say, well, we think that I'm just making this up, vaccines or, you know, hypertension, these are your issues. But we'd really like the community to to tell us what they think are the top priorities and to prioritize them. Like, do they think that mental health is an issue? Do they think substance abuse in their community is the top issue? So I think in in five years, I hope I can tell you that we learned from the community what they thought the top needs were and we addressed those through our project. That's awesome. So I guess one last, a little bit of a broader step. If you had one thing to say to the general public listening to this, what would you want them to know about what you guys are doing with this going forward with the grant project or what I'd like them to know about the with refugee your, community with your work and in your experience in Clarkston there's a passage in a book that was written by Mary Pfeiffer many years ago the anthropologist that talks about you know it's just the principle of put yourself in the other person's shoes if you woke up all of a sudden in the middle of the African plain and you didn't know how to speak the language, and you didn't know where to get a job, and you didn't even know where to get clean water, who would you ask for help? How would you support your family? How would you take care of yourself? That's no different than my refugee friends who land at the airport with their families, and they don't know how, who, what to ask. And I think that if you think about the fact that 70 million people is a very conservative estimate for the number of people in the world who face that dilemma daily, that's, that's tragic. And it's um, a, a growing problem. And unfortunately, it seems like um, the idea that we are all human and that's a shared, a shared concept and value and that every human being deserves the same rights to the same access, to the same opportunities, 
um, whether it's health or education or to get a job or to pursue just a safe, happy life. I think we all deserve the same opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to Seeking Refuge. We release these episodes bi-monthly, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts so you don't miss any of them. Also, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at RefugePod to get the latest news about the show. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, send us an email to seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Huge thanks to Maxi International House for making this show possible and for Dr. O'Connor for taking the time to talk with us. Our next episode is on February 17th. We'll see you then.